Hello! Welcome to History Obscura. I am your host, Mandy Gardner. I hope you're ready for Chapter 2 of The Utmost Island. The tea has been poured, Tito is curled up in his listening basket, and everything is ready. But first... Chapter 2 The sea not only guarded the Icelanders, it helped them raid anyone else. The sea king sailed with his father one delightful day to make friends with wind and waves and learn that ships are horses that you ride through water. It was frightening to see Iceland fading back of them in the mist and the unstable water below but he was among men, on a raiding trip, so he sneered his fears away. With sun and stars to guide them, they headed for a fat, lazy country that was not expecting them, waited just beyond sight of land for night and mist, then rode in suddenly and attacked with fire and torch. The Sea King, ordered to remain aboard away from the fight, heard the surprised foes screaming with terror as they realized who the raiders must be. Then, swiftly, before the alarm could be spread, his countrymen came wading back to the ship. Some were carrying gold and silver ornaments, and some herded their captives aboard. He joined in jeering at the wretches who would be slaves when they got back to Iceland and in a mocking shout back through the darkness at those still left alive on shore. Then they put to sea again, and went on to another land, and another, piling riches into the hold, with no cost but a captive thrown overboard for Odin, to ensure the gods' lasting favor. And then at last they sailed back home, with a shipload of Swedish horses and Irish slaves, and gold and silver and women to replace those dead or divorced, and a new song about their triumph. We fell upon them suddenly, with a shout, with a rush, with a sword, with a torch. Now we return in victory, but they are slaves or dead. He went on many such raids across the bosom of wise, gray-bearded ocean, and each time when he returned, he felt new love for his fierce, brave island, with its glaciers and volcanoes and geysers and gales and lakes of boiling tar and the mighty tales that must be true of those mighty places. Then the sea would close in again and shut out all the rest, even from memory. His land was alone and wonderful, and its gods were best. On one of these sea trips, his father was reminded of a voyage he had taken ten years earlier, and was moved to tell him about it. It had to do with yet one more game, called Revenge. As he remembered his way through the story, he smiled indicating that revenge was a pleasant game. He told it as man to man, or boy to boy, as he gazed across the water into the setting sun, which every evening at that time visits its friend, the past, 
His own fiery red beard caught the glint, so that all that redness of beard, sun, and flaming path that stretched between them, across the water, burnt the story into the very bottom of his son's mind, where it rested for years, waiting till it should be called forth to fill a need. I lent the pillars of my high seat to Thorgus Drangar, he said. They were carved with the image of Locke on them, who has always befriended me and helped me prosper. Thorgist had not done well, and he thought that Locke might help him as he had helped me. As soon as he had the pillars in his house, Locke did indeed come to his aid. His farm yielded a good crop, his wife became pregnant, and his worst enemy was poisoned. No one knew how. Then I asked to have my pillars back, but he refused. The reason was, as I learned later, he envied me my land, which was larger and better than his. He thought he might get it away from me by keeping my luck. When he went on refusing, my temper boiled up, and the next thing our swords were out and I had killed him. Well, I was ready enough to pay the fine, according to the law, for I had my pillars back and they were worth the price. But Thorgest's malice pursued me from his grave, and once at night my door slammed, and I knew he was haunting my house. He had been planning and plotting with his kinsmen, who were lawmen, how to get my land, and they were in control of the thing when a case was tried. They must have seen Thorgist's ghost too, and promised him to complete their scheme, for instead of being fined I was exiled for three years, in which time they reasoned that they could get my land and also find legal tricks by which to keep it. There was nothing I could do, because there were too many of them. So I set sail with a few servants and slaves for some land to the north, which has been seen by Ulf the Crow when he was blown off his course. We reached it after a difficult voyage, and found that it was a desolate, sunless place, covered with ice and torn from a freezing wind. So we left it and sailed to a small, unpeopled island off the coast of Ireland, where we lived our three years, pleasantly enough. At the end of that time, we went back to Iceland. I told everyone precisely where I had been, but I said it in such a way as to make it seem a lie, as if I were trying to conceal something of great value. At last one night, when they thought they had me drunk, I let them drag a story out of me that I had been living on Ulf's land, which I had named Greenland because it was such a fertile and beautiful place, and that I meant to return there as soon as I had farm tools and other things I needed. The healthy look of my servants and myself bore out my story. They believed it. His smile broadened. A number of those land-hungry judges of mine, who had condemned me at the thing, hastily sold their farms and scurried off to Greenland to be the first to settle and claim it. 
they came back two years later, such of them as were left alive. And there were several who had a hand or foot frozen off. I was in possession by then, on our farm, which I have clung to ever since. They cursed me and Greenland. They seemed to think I had named it badly. His son gloated with him. Was it very bad there? he asked, hoping to increase his zest. Well, his father replied thoughtfully, I would not urge any true friend to live there unless he was desperate, and all the rest of the world had come to an end. Then he threw back his head and roared with the loudest laughter his son had ever heard, so that he simply had to laugh, too, partly over the delicious taste of the revenge, and partly at the sight of his father's beard bobbing up and down and seeming to be part of the sunset. End of chapter 2 Thank you for joining me. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash history obscura. Good night.